Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Nuts Boat Pucks podcast. I'm your host, Alex Nani, and in today's episode, we will be interviewing former NHL player and enforcer Riley Cote. This is a great episode, and we cover a wide range of topics from Riley's career in the NHL, uh, his role as an enforcer, and also his uh, interest in psychedelics now as a retired player. It's a really, really interesting podcast, and I want to give a shout-out to Riley's business, which is Body Check Wellness. They sell premium hemp extracts. Uh, This is great for recovery, pain relief, mental health, that sort of stuff. We get into it on the podcast. Then if you use the code HockeyNewsIG at checkout, you get 20% off on all products on the website. I'll link it in the description of the podcast and also put it on my Instagram story. But the code is HockeyNewsIG, H-O-C-K-E-Y-N-E-W-S-I-G, no dot whatsoever. You get 20% off. Let's get straight into the interview. All right, well, first of all, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, how are you uh, holding up uh, in quarantine? <laughs> it's actually been pretty good. Uh, I got two young daughters, been able to spend a lot of time with them. Uh, the weather has turned pretty nice here recently, so been able to get outside, you know, bike rides in the backyard and whatnot. So it's actually been pretty good, just trying to find the balance of work and uh, family. So. That's awesome. So you had a um, a brief career in the NHL. So uh, were you always like an enforcer type of player or did you start off differently? No, I wouldn't say I was always an enforcer type of player. I uh, grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba, played all my youth hockey in Winnipeg as, uh, you know, one of the go-to guys. I understand I was a you know big fish in a small pond, but nonetheless, up until I moved away from home uh, to play junior hockey, I had been in one midget hockey fight, and it was like a bench-clearing brawl, cage rage. So never really had that on my mind. Moved away from home when I was 16 uh, to play in the Western Hockey League, and I didn't sign up to be an enforcer, but that year I had more fights uh, than I had in all three other junior years. I had nine fights, which is, you know, it's enough, but it's not anything significant if you're actually considering yourself an enforcer. So I think I had like 18 fights over four years in junior hockey, then I turned pro, undrafted, and just made the decision to be a fighter. So I just went into training camp to take on the biggest, baddest dudes, the guys the most penalty minutes, biggest guys, and uh, that's what I did. You know, it was uh, it landed up being a, a job. Exactly what I focused on is exactly what I did, and was 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 to to hit, be a physical guy, and then and fight and answer the bell. So. After that, I was fighting 30, 35 times a year. So I wasn't, uh, you know, it never really crossed my mind early on in my career to be an enforcer. It was just something that I figured I had to do to give myself a standing chance to ever play in the NHL. I was looking at the guys getting called up, a lot of penalty minutes and a lot of goals. And being undrafted and being a competitive guy, you know, I was into, you know, being in shape and, you know, just all, you know, all, all these things just really competitive that I just figured. In my mind, I knew I could do this. You know, I could at least train my ass off to to be the best that I could be. So um, that's what I tr- decided to do. You know, it was, it was nothing more than just giving myself a standing chance. Mm-hmm. Did you train in the off season for fighting at all? I did. It's after my first yeah. couple of years pro. I was slugging it out in the real minor minor leagues in the Central Hockey League and then East Coast Hockey League. There wasn't a whole lot of resources for that type of stuff. So just going to the gym and you know overly lifting weights 
in a non-functional hockey functional way. But uh, it wasn't until I uh, got signed on with the Philadelphia Phantoms when I started to take different types of, say, martial arts and or self-defense, if you want to call it that, uh, training. Started with karate, did some taekwondo. Eventually, I realized that wasn't overly practical and functional for a hockey fighter. I needed to get, you know, a little bit greasier. So I got into, like, Greco-Roman wrestling, wearing a gi, getting in tight, throwing guys around, stuff like that. So fighting these big Camden cops, sparring with them, and just got into more, you know, actual stand-up combat stuff, which was extremely relative to a hockey fight with the with the gi and the hockey jersey in, in close, dirty boxing type of training I was doing. So and it was the last probably four or five years that I really – uh, focused on specifically fighting and hockey on the off season, but uh, yeah, it became it became a you know a, a skilled position, right? Uh, back in the day, in Broad Street Bully, these guys are just you know throwing throwing haymakers, and there was really no strategy besides you know punches and bunches. Uh, not that I was a, a technical fighter by any means, but uh, there's certainly a lot of guys that really trained in you know tying up and and being in position and protecting their jaw and all these things that a true fighter would, mm-hmm. you know, would learn and would know to, to fight, right? You're protecting your jaw, protecting your head and all these things. So yeah, it was certainly uh, beneficial. No question. And I'm interested, like how many fights are pre-planned and how many fights are kind of heat of the moment? It's hard to say exactly, but I would say a good chunk of mine and, and probably most in this last, you know, you know, 15 year era since mm-hmm. the adoption of, instigator rule or probably a lot more say planned and when they say planned it wasn't like i was talking to the guy last night on the phone and saying hey we're, yeah. we're gonna scrap it's happened that's happened a few times don't get me wrong but uh, uh it's not that planned it's more like in the moment uh being on the ice with the other fighter you know knowing the score knowing the the storyline of the opponent how have the last few games gone are you you know making a name for yourself is he making a name for himself so there's a bunch of variables that that, that, that are in play but Nonetheless, you kind of know, right? So if I'm, you know, down a couple goals and I line up with the other guy's tough guy, there's probably a good chance. Well, there's a, there's an absolute chance I'm gonna try and fight him. There's a really good chance that he might accept it, but you know, depending on his situation, he might not. So, you know, I kind of like know going into it that I'm gonna fight a certain guy. If, you know, list out, you know, one to four guys that maybe probably less than that. One to one to three guys that would probably land up fighting me or could fight me potentially based on just, you know, being brave enough, uh, you know, just situational and whatnot. So preparing to fight those guys every night. And then, you know, again, it's, you line up for a face off in a certain situation, you kind of know, right? Uh, So to answer your question, whether it's 90% staged, if you want to call it that 10% spontaneous, I think, the numbers are like that because we're trying to remove the instigator rule and that extra penalty to put your team down. So, you know, previous to the instigator rule, it was like, okay, someone's going to cheap shot or do something right in front of me. I'm going to take care of business right here and now. I think it landed up being more, well, I can't do that because I'm going to get an instigator uh, call on me. I'm going to get thrown in the penalty box for 17 minutes and put my team down for two minutes. So the best strategy around that would just be, okay, let's just line up at the face-off or in the middle of the play and both agree to fight. And it looks like it's staged and it's planned, but it's just guys doing their job within the, the rules yeah. of the game without getting penalized. So that, that, that's why I started looking like that. To me, it, in my opinion, it, it should go back with no instigator and keep that true accountability in where it's like if something happens, the, the refs can only do so much. And then the players need to, 
self-police to some degree, right? I'm not I'm not suggesting Broad Street bullies where there's bench clearing brawls and fights and warm-ups and, and and all that, but there there has to be a happy medium of the players earning that respect within the limitations of the game versus having the refs to police it and, and almost use that extra policing as a, an advantage to just to sell it a little bit more, embellish it a little bit more, not, you know, not stick up for yourself. And the strategy is like, well, let's just go on the power play. You know, and I guess it's, I guess it's great yeah. strategy. Uh, um, in, 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 in when, when you, when you look at the, the big picture because of the rules, but to me, it's like you lose integrity of the game when you do that. And, and, and to me, there's, there's a lot of lost respect. There's a lot more concussions now than ever. I understand mm-hmm. there's more, no more than ever, but we're, we're also seeing a lot more cheap shots. A lot of things that you wouldn't see, you know, 15, 20 years ago, previous to the, uh, you know, instigator rule. So it's probably longer than that now. I forget I've been out of the game 10 years now, but you know, it's probably, probably 20 years. But nonetheless, that, that just that added element of accountability in the back of your mind, knowing, but if you cross that line, hey, play hard, play the game hard and respectful. If you cross that line, whether it's by accident or on purpose, there should be a price to pay. You know, it's to me that's what that's how respect is yeah. earned. So you play the game hard, you cross that line. If you man up and and settle the score, and you you earn not just the guys that you fought's respect, but you earn the the opponents and your team's respect for manning up to how you play the game. And there's mm-hmm. there's some guys that done that very well in their NHL hockey careers and, and still continue to do that. But there's a lot of guys that, especially now with the rules, they 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 ride that line of, you know, you, you don't even want to call yourself a tough guy. It's almost like you're a cheap shot artist protected yeah. by the rules behind him. And you're able to get away with stuff that you normally wouldn't get away with. So to me, that's how you remove that is just added added accountability. So I understand the politics in the game and liability and, and concussions and the whole bit. But to, to, to tell you the honest truth, I truly believe that if you were able to protect yourself and your, and your teammate a little bit more without penalizing it, so it's, just, it's not such a strategy to just accept it and then go on the power play, that there would be less cheap shots. There would be, there would be a more respectful hockey game in in, in play. In my in that my my opinion. I, mm-hmm. I feel like there's an element of respect that's lost, an element of integrity uh, that's that's been lost. That's just kind of like this this ingredient that you really can't quantify, but it really is real. Because I, I mean, I played the game and I played against the toughest dudes uh, to ever lace them up. Fought Donald Brashear five times, George LaRock three, Brian McGrath and these guys. And I know even from a guy that was fearless how my mindset was knowing that Donald Brashear wasn't going to be in the lineup. Just so I'm like, oh, okay, well, then I can fight the second or third toughest guys. I don't have to fight the biggest, baddest dude, so I can even act like a bigger jackass. You know, so that strategy was just my, by me puffing my chest out and, and you know, acting extra tough. But I, I also had to back it up too, right? I couldn't just go around and run my mouth and act tough and then have no one – and no one's going to, you know, respond. So I didn't have to respond to them. So – there's a big difference of you know acting tough and being tough versus just acting tough and then hiding behind the rules and to me that 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 just somewhat bothersome because it's just it's just like play i i love that you play like that but then you just got to back it up sometimes you know you just gotta you just have to respond to earn the respect you know and if you're cool with you know playing that game without the respect and you know really just demanding that you know, that extra layer of respect, then, you know, that's just, just show, I guess it shows the character. I just feel like there's a little bit less of that uh, these days than there ever has been. Yeah, I think you made some really good points there. Were there any fights in your career that were particularly memorable for you? 
there's been, there's been a couple. Yeah, I think Andre Waugh. I fought him. I fought him a couple of times. Uh, twice in one game in Philly. Wound up being a two punch. Uh, interesting fight based on the storyline of uh, me fighting him previous to that. Fought him in the exact same spot earlier in the game in the, in the left corner of the rink by the Zamboni and. Um, he, I was a lefty, he's a righty. I grabbed onto his, his lineup being his left hand, his lead hand, and he got out of his jersey. And, you know, he got, he got a few more punches than I ever, ever hoped him to get. Not that he beat me up by any means, but I wanted a rematch. So I squared up with him again, and, and he, he, I grabbed on the almost same, same spot in his jersey, and he tried to pull out of his jersey right away, and I let go. And his hand got caught, so right away I came in and, and bombed him a couple. So it was it was it was a it was a, a powerful moment. I was mic'd up with, with NHL Network. Oh, really? Sister was in town for MS. It was like an MS Awareness Night. She has MS, so it was like you know a pretty like you know, emotional, say emotional win for me based on the situation and storyline. And then Andre Wall had a complete meltdown after that. But I had a few like really just really good fights just overall. If you just like watched a hockey fight. With Sean Thornton and you know Brian McGratton and some of these some of these tough dudes, Eric Goddard, Aaron Asham. Uh, so yeah, you know there's, there's there's a lot of good ones. There's certainly some I like to forget, but that's just you know part of it, right? Um, but yeah, there's a few that stick out to me as being on a high end of uh, you know the emotional roller coaster. How much research do you do on like a potential opponent that you might fight like in a game? I mean. Not a ton. I mean, there's there's not a whole lot of secrets there when you start fighting these guys regularly or, you know, in, in that space of fighting. So, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to lie. I watch every hockey fight in the NHL and American Hockey League and probably East Coast Hockey League in those, those first early years, not just of the guys I was fighting, but just everyone. So by the time I did land up fighting some of these guys, which I kind of knew I was going to fight eventually – Anytime I cross paths, I kind of knew these guys' track record, who they're fighting, and how active they were, lefty, righty. So, yeah, I would watch fights of other guys fighting, and then, you know, as I get closer, just more recent fights, just to, you know, just to kind of observe what they're up to. But usually, you know, lefty, righty, are they, you know, going for the knockout punch? Are they more technical? So it's not rocket science, you know, knowing what these guys do. And I think for me, it was just like fighting my fight, not letting these guys fight their other fights, but certainly a different strategy fighting guy like Sean Thornton or Aaron Asham, a guy's more my size versus, you know, Brian McGratton and mm-hmm. Don, George LaRock, Don Brashear. These guys are just so, so much bigger and longer and stronger. And so, you know, getting in tight and getting some of the, you know, little uppercut rabbit punches in versus like having them string you out and start bombing you. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say a ton and probably not as much, you know, nearly as much as a UFC fighter where you're probably breaking down a video because there's so many different dimensions. There's more, just a few five, you know, five basic things of just like what they tendencies and what they do, lefty, righty, you know, chin down, whatnot, approach on square up, and after that, just like you get after it, you know. More than half the battle is just the buildup of the fight and getting into the fight. You know, the fight is actually somewhat enjoyable, believe it or not. It's just mm-hmm. all the emotions and the buildup and the anxiety leading up to it is probably more mentally draining than 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 the fight itself or the whole hockey game for that matter it's just uh, it's just a whole other world of anxiety telling honest truth so what was, what do you think was your favorite hockey experience of your entire career um probably 2004 2005 season i signed uh well, I signing four ptos professional tryouts throughout the season with the philadelphia phantoms it was the uh, second last lockout. 
So that was my third year pro and signed again the 25 game tryout, 25 game tryout. Land up sticking around the whole season with the Phantoms and won a called cup there. It was uh, the reason I say it's like an accumulation of things is because of like the storyline of my own individual story, like, you know, signing a PTO and basically was supposed to go back to the Central Hockey League that year and stick stuck around the whole season and led the team in penalty minutes, but also being a part of an amazing team and winning a Stanley or a, and a Calder Cup, sorry. And and just how we did it, we didn't have anybody in the top 20 scoring. We just had a collective group of just good, strong character guys and and just this one game, we, you know, I think it was in the first or second round of playoffs, I can't remember, against Wilkes-Barre, we were down, I don't even know, it was like 6-3, and we came back in the fourth, in the third period and, and scored like five goals and, and won the game and then won the series. And just like this, this momentum, this energy you really can't uh, quantify. But uh, overall, just an amazing experience for me. And that was mm-hmm. arguably my best year in Philly. So uh, I just remember that whole year as being such a positive experience for me. Uh, so my next question is, um, so in 2010, you were on the Flyers uh, when they made that cup run. So what was that experience like? Yeah, that, that uh, run was pretty interesting. Making the playoffs last game of the season in a shootout against the Rangers and then going on to the finals and just how everything worked out and the goalie shuffle and and the the the, the series against Boston. Um was you know being down three nothing and then three nothing in the game and coming back and winning yeah. the series i thought we were destined to win the stanley cup for me personally it was an interesting year only because john stevens had gotten fired early in the season and peter laviolette replaced him and he didn't see a need for a tough guy so i really didn't play a whole lot that season so i was more just a rah 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 just uh, earn your paycheck be a good team player guy the whole season I think I got thrown on waivers towards the end of the season, never got sent down. I dressed every warm-up of the season and every warm-up in the playoffs. Didn't play one playoff game. So I think I dressed 17, 18 games that whole year. But just being around, obviously, around the team, and, and I was still you know, part of the 23-man roster, um, it was amazing. An amazing group of guys, great, amazing team there that year, too. Just the adversity with the goalie shuffle. I can't remember the order of the injuries between Michael Layton, Brian Boucher, and and we picked up or we, we had Mike, em, Ray Emery and Brian Boucher picked up Michael Layton on waivers, and then they got interchangeably injured throughout the year, and then going to playoffs, there was a couple injuries, and and, and Layton landed up being our number one. But again, just uh, just a really confident team, just interesting layers of scoring, and and we had some uh, toughness. But uh, yeah, that was an awesome year too, and even. Even for my situation, it was still very memorable. I mean, it was it was something that I you know cherished. I woke up in the morning, I was still the first guy at the rink every day, had a good attitude. So as shitty as it was to not be in the lineup, I mean, it's mm-hmm. first world problem. Um, you know, I could uh, you know I could sleep at night. Yeah, so that's that was such a crazy season from coming back three nothing against Boston to then like the Patrick Kane's uh, overtime goal. They never really found the puck. Uh, what was that feeling in the locker room after the loss in Game Six? Well, obviously disappointing. I just think the way it went down was probably even more disappointing. Yeah, maybe a winner and a loser. I think just to go down on a play like that, like in just an insignificant play that normally would never happen, it's just deflating. Obviously, yeah. right? It's like no one even knew that the goal went in, right? I mean, it was. Uh-huh. Um, it was, it was it was just one of those. It wasn't an exciting play. It wasn't like an amazing play. 
So, yeah, I mean, it was probably extra disappointing, especially having come back in the, you know, the previous series and mm-hmm. making the playoffs the way we did and getting on the, that role that we did. I think it was, you know, it was probably more devastating than, than, uh, than even if, if they had lost because of just the, just, I feel like just based on the storyline, I thought it was like a Cinderella story. I thought this is like, yeah. this is absolutely happening. No, there's no way we can lose this. So to go down like that, it was just like, ah, man, all that work to lose like that. Hey, it's just like, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, that's, that's, that's the game, you know, it's, you know, who knows? We would have gone back to Chicago. We still have to beat them in their building. So, but just to go down like that in Philly like that, it was just, you know, I think that was probably extra disappointing. Mm-hmm. So you're an open user of like uh, psychocybin or I don't know how to pronounce that, but mushrooms and uh, CBD. Psilocybin, yeah. Um, so how did you first get into that stuff? Well, I've been using cannabis and psilocybin since I was 15 years old uh, mm-hmm. in very recreational settings. I had no understanding of it as medicine. I had no understanding of it for its you know, healing components, really, and, and the, the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the neuroprotective and neurogenesis properties that they offer. So there was no real separation between schedule one drugs growing up for me, uh, you know, between my family, my parents, the church, the school, law enforcement, law, everything that I had been told was that these were really bad for you, bad for your brain. And, you know, well, you'll die if you start using these drugs. So I had a relationship from them again early on in in my life there. As I got older, I started to understand cannabis a little bit more, especially when I started fighting. I started really identifying with how it was helping my anxiety. I didn't really understand what anxiety really was um, up until I started fighting and having that chronic, you know, that chronic anxiety of always knowing I'm going to fight. And so I started identifying really what, what cannabis was really doing. It was really calming me down and helping me sleep and it really relaxing me. And I felt like it was helping with my muscles. And I felt, I felt like in the morning I was, I was fresher, you know. But again, I didn't know at that time that uh, that uh, you know there was this big medical component to it, a therapeutic component. I mean, I had I don't think at that point in my life I had finished a, a book in my life. So you know, to, to read a book about cannabis or start studying cannabis when I was you know right in the middle of just meathead mode, that wasn't happening. So it was based on yeah. sheer experience and just feeling the way I felt using them. And then again, on the psilocybin things, it was festivals, concerts, parties. You know, there was no true intention behind it besides, you know, if you want to say getting high or having a good time. So had some great experiences with it. Don't get me wrong. Um, some really you know, insightful things happened, but again, not really understanding the, the real true dimension of what these things are. And it wasn't how it wasn't until 2010 when I retired. I retired after that uh, that playoff run. I had another year in my contract. Uh, with the Flyers, and I forfeited it and, and got out of the game and, and did some coaching. But it, the biggest reason for my move was for me to kind of avoid substance abuse programs and and do it myself. And I did it myself using plant medicine. So that last year when I wasn't playing, to go back to two stories ago when I you know wasn't it was in and out of the lineup and not playing much. That year, I landed up, you know, started starting to really read up on some of these things and read a few books on just natural health and anti-inflammatories and read a book called Hemp for Health and started to understand these different dimensions of the cannabis plant. I was like, wow, I'm like, 
how could I have been using this plant this long and not really known any of this, right? Just like going on based yeah, on a yeah. feeling of how it was making me feel. So I started to kind of make some sense of cannabis prohibition and medicine and the politics in medicine and started learning about the U.S. patent on CBD or cannabinoids as neuroprotectants and, and, and antioxidants. So I was like, wow, I was like, this is not just this is not just like somewhat good for you. This is actually good for your brain. So I was like, you know, being in 250 hockey fights, I was like, well, I, I might have actually did my brain some service and actually protected it. Yeah. Maybe who knows? Uh, and the psilocybin, I wasn't using the psilocybin as much as I was cannabis, but nonetheless, I was. Um, still using it quasi regularly in the grand scheme of psilocybin macrodoses. And again, learning about the science behind that, I was like, wow, I was like, I was actually creating neural pathways this whole time, or at least protecting my brain. Maybe that was why I didn't have so many concussions or didn't have any really, you know, some serious, uh, say, concussion or TBI issues after the fact. So, but then I started using these substances with intention. So then I would actively go out and buy CBD for its neuroprotectant properties and, and anti-inflammatory properties. So knowing the damage that I had caused or probably caused, I had no diagnosis of it because I was just trying to avoid that altogether. I just knew that there was probably some damage there based on how I was feeling. Um, so using that with intention, cannabis, understanding cannabis a little more before it was just about ripping the bong and, and getting high. Well, now I understood microdosing of cannabis, smaller doses of THC. The varieties of THC were cranked to the roof. We had no, no real understanding of yeah. you know, the, the real balanced cannabis plant. So lower THC, higher CBD, but nonetheless a mixture of both. And then getting, getting into psilocybin with intention. Macrodosing by myself in a quiet space, listening. You know, we don't listen enough, and listening when you're in a meditative state induced by psilocybin mushrooms is a pretty powerful thing. You can learn a lot about yourself. You know, it could be it could be somewhat scary, or there's, there's some fear involved, but nonetheless, you get through it, and and uh, you're better for it. So, started using that um, on a macro level, and then. You know, it wasn't too long after that I started understanding, again, microdosing of psilocybin and understanding that you could legitimately supplement this on a daily basis or, you know, every three days and give yourself a day off, whatever regimen you choose to, mm -hmm. to follow with that. But, um, you know, micro microdosing, you know, even a, a half of a microdose, but nonetheless taking this where there's like a subtherapeutic effect where you're not feeling the psychedelic at all and you're just... You're just feeling more clear and focused and, and you know, sustained energy. So um, then I was like, wow, this is like a whole other dimension of, of, of living because I was so used to being on stimulants, mm -hmm. like coffee and alcohol and uh, four games taking Sudafed and sleeping pills and, you know, whatever, you know, whatever there, there was around and, and given me, it was... It was, it was all toxic for my health. And all of a sudden, I found these two things that I already had a relationship with. Um, to, I found them as healing modalities, but understanding the science behind them. And that science was paired with my experience and made me obviously a believer 100%, even though I was already a believer based on how it made me feel. So it's, it's been amazing. And now you know, part of my life's journey or a good portion of it is, is teaching about plant medicines in addition to, you know, personal improvement and, and, and self-development and, and, you know, all that good stuff, because these are tools, these are amazing tools, but we really have to do the work ourselves. We can't just rely on plants to do the work and we can't just go into these deep 
spaces and you know intelligence and download all this information and then go back into the real world and do nothing with it you know so it's always about us and self-love and improving ourselves but using these other tools around us to make ourselves better people that's awesome so i'm curious have you ever like dabbled with compounds such as like mdma or lsd i have yeah both of them so my relationship with MDMA was back in my old life, very, uh, you know, recreational. So I, I don't have a good relationship with it in, a, in an intentional setting. The only uh, synthetic drug that I've touched um, since my retirement in 2010, and I avoided all prescription drugs after my surgery, was LSD because that is synthesized, and that was with intention. Yeah. And uh, I had a pretty interesting experience with that. I still... I still really appreciate psilocybin more. I don't, I don't know what it is, if it's yeah. more of a grounding or what it is. Uh, but I certainly had a, an amazing experience. But uh, for me, it's just like, I'm just like focused on the psilocybin. Done the ayahuasca, I've been to Peru and the, you know, the, the ceremonies of ayahuasca. And, and I really appreciated that. And I think there's a ton of healing through that, uh, through that brew. But I think the the mushrooms are just so much more accessible. They grow in you know literally they grow in a horse and cow shit and yeah. can be grown anywhere. And there's over 200 species of psilocybin with uh, or mushrooms with psilocybin across the planet. So as far as accessibility um, and just uh, integration, integration, integration. If again, if you're not concerned about getting the psychedelic effect, you can get a major positive. Um, health benefit by microdosing these and it, it would be just like supplementing lion's mane and cordyceps or some other functional mushroom you just get the energy out of it but you get no psychedelic effect so for me for for healing of the nations just like hemp and cannabis is you know healing of the nations we talk about industrial applications for hemp and the medicinal food you look at the mushrooms and and the mushroom kingdom is is, is much like the cannabis world where you have you have mushrooms as food, you have mushrooms as supplements, functional mushrooms, and you have mushrooms as spiritual or religious sacraments, if you want to call them that. And then you have a whole other industrial side of things where mushrooms can replace styrofoams and some of these industrial fabrics and, 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 and building materials and whatnot. So uh, I'm fascinated with mushrooms much like I am hemp and, and cannabis because I know it can change the world. You know, we live in a synthetic world. We have almost synthetic lives. Soon we'll have yeah, synthetic yeah. immunities with this this agenda that's going to be pushed um so i've just been one of those guys since i retired because previous to my retirement i was much like most people were just i just trusted the system enough where it it almost killed me it was it was you know me consumerism and eat and eat and eat and you know party and drink and you know all these things that are you know material things that are outside of me but it wasn't until after when I started reeling in, starting with diet, nutritional healing, right? I mean, yeah. we are what you eat, you know, feed, feed the main brain, the GI and, and build up that, that microbiome and really start healing from the inside out. But I mean, if you, if you can't reel in the diet and you're just going to patch things up with, well, plants are superior to, to pharmaceutical drugs, but if you're just going to patch things up and not, you know, do the true deep healing. You're always going to, you know, be behind the eight ball and chase the healing versus getting ahead of it, which is considered preventative or proactive medicine, right? Is, is removing the inflammation bef- before you really have the inflammation or you're getting ahead of the night's sleep by calming the nervous system before sleep. So you're not, you know, rolling around in your bed for three hours and then falling asleep at 2 a.m. and then and waking up at five, you know, it's like, it's like it's sleep is the spine of the recovery. So all these things that are super 
fundamental and very basic. Most people can understand them, but to practice them and have the discipline to encourage these things in a positive fashion it is work. It's discipline. Mm -hmm. And it begins with thought. I think most people, most people's thoughts are in the past. We emotionalize past memories and we live in this low vibration and we're angry, resentful. You know, we're, we're jealous. We have all these different mm -hmm. negative emotions. We can't be creators. We can't be creative and we can't really exude positivity when we're living in this low vibration. So, um, and it's hard to, in that moment, engage in these, you know, fruitful, positive behaviors like eating healthy. You know, when we're, we're, we're angry and we're depressed and all this stuff, we're not, we're not building a nice green salad. We're, we're, gonna, mm -hmm. we're ordering up, you know, uh, whatever, pizza and some, some bullshit from whatever restaurant. We're just, you know, we're just feeding yeah. ourselves and, you know, it's emotional eating. So um, I, I think most people's understanding of health, they can understand it, but the practice of life, I mean, it's an art. I mean, it's there's a there's skill to it. You have to abide abide by natural laws. And for me, for years, didn't abide by the natural laws until it started. The natural world started kicking me in the face. It kicks you in the face with anxiety, and it kicks you in the face with depression and 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 substance abuse. And then you have to be accountable and look at yourself in the mirror and be like, well, what am I doing here? Well, I'm getting punched in the face for a living. That's certainly not good for my brain health. And I'm drinking every other night and partying and and. And the party extends to Coke and whatever other drugs I'm doing. And I'm, you know, staying up till two, three, four in the morning, sometimes going to practice right from the party. You know, how long can you live like that? And to not be honest, that, that doesn't affect your mental health and your performance and your relationships and all that stuff is like, you have to sit back and be real. You can't live like that. Yeah. Not for long periods of time. Maybe when you're invincible and young and, you, you know, and everything's going well, yeah. eventually life's going to throw you a curveball and you got to deal with that in an unstable mindset. So to me, mental health, you know, beginning with thought and, and, and daily behaviors, engaging in positive daily behaviors is, is really the only true way of, of navigating this crazy world, especially now, you know, there's, there's more fear and more propaganda and misinformation than ever. And so we have to make sense of it all. Yeah. So the only thing we have is true freedoms is building up our immunity with, health and you know healthy foods and, and herbs and, and and fungi and all these you know amazing things that mother nature has provided and uh and been a positive mental attitude outside of that if you don't have those two things and you don't have health it's yeah you can chase you can chase money all day but if you don't have that like to me you, you don't you don't have that true happiness you can't sustain a positive mental attitude yeah i'm curious are you familiar with the stoned ape theory i am yeah, that's, I am. That's yeah, a, I'm not, I'm not sure uh, on um, on how I feel about it. In, in, in theory, it could absolutely make sense. I mean, there's no question mushrooms yeah. increase consciousness. I'm just not. I'm just not 100% sold sold that we we evolved from apes. Yeah. So yeah. that theory. So I just like I'm just not sure it was quite like that. But there's no question. There's no question in my mind that psychedelics have helped human beings increase consciousness and i think that's why there's always been somewhat somewhat of a prohibition against them you know whether it's the mm -hmm. church you know demonizing the mushrooms or you know certain groups because i think they were very well aware that these induced consciousness they induced awareness and mindfulness and when you induce consciousness 
you're a threat, right? I mean, now, now you're, now you're awake, right? So they want everyone sleeping where he's like, okay, well, just make slaves of these people and let them do their thing. And we'll, we'll profit off their disease and we'll overwork them. And we're going to, you know, build all these bullshit rules around them and be, treat them like ants. And, um, you know, until you're you know able to rise out of that state of vibration where you no longer accept that slavery, or now you change, you're now you're forced to change your, your way of life where you now are empowered and you control it and you you're accountable well now all of a sudden you've raised consciousness and i think that psychedelics and meditation and all these modalities throughout time have helped humans elevate consciousness unfortunately a good chunk of this planet doesn't use any of these tools to raise consciousness we get swallowed yeah. up in CNNs of the world, and the Fox News and these, you know, these distractions and and all these things just really don't matter at the end of the day. And what matters is our health and our connection to the earth and our connections to ourself and and relationships. And these are these tribal, primal, fundamental values that we've ignored as an industrialized, um, you know, uh, being. And we've we've become industrialized. Synthetic fiber, synthetic fuel, synthetic food, synthetic medicine. Our water is polluted with heavy metals. Um, everything is synthesized. Everything is industrialized. And we've become disconnected. We're, we have amazing technology, tech-wise, disconnected to ourself. Disconnected to the self. I mean, to me, you're disconnected to the self. There's no way you can be happy. You're always going to be in a state of anxiety and depression. You know, if you're not connected to Mother Nature mm-hmm. and your food. No one even knows a, a local farmer anymore. It's like, okay, well, let's just go buy GMO crops because they're subsidized and they're cheaper. No, you know, no, no care in the world that, that those are sprayed with, you know, Roundup Ready glyphosate, you know, very toxic, you know, herbicide. So that's consciousness, right? So to me, it's just if we can just, you know, bang the drum and, and, and show the natural healing and, and, and show these transformations. There's a lot of people doing it. There's, there is a real true yeah, movement. There is, there in. is. Unfortunately, we need to wake up quicker because things are changing at a, in a rapid speed right now. So the more, more the more awake we are, the more conscious we are, um, the better. But to go back to your your point with the, you know the Paul Stamets and the stoned ape theory, or I think it's a stoned yeah. ape hypothesis. I think the way he yeah, describes yeah, it. Yeah. Very, very, it is very intriguing. There's, again, there's no question that mushrooms had a big, big part in human consciousness. I'm just like so torn on, you know, evolution versus even getting aliens involved. Like to me, like listening to some of these ancient alien stuff and this, you know, this, this these ancient civilizations that are hard to explain. Like yeah. to me, I, I almost think mankind has evolved or died off or evolved several times and then with certain people will live through some of these apocalypses i think we've self-destructed several times um so i don't interesting, know interesting. i don't know if I believe that you know apes you know three million years ago evolved from this primal ape type uh, being to a conscious you know upright human being especially when there's still monkeys and orangutans and apes yeah. you know that roam the planet but um no yeah so i mean there's a, there's, a, there's a ton of different theories out there I think it's way deeper than most people think. I mean, you look at the planet, planet Earth is just one planet around one star. If the galaxy is infinite and there's billion stars, if just one planet around each star sustained life, whether it was an actual conscious being or just, you know, a, a single cell organism, even if you chop that number in half, there has to be life outside of mankind of this planet. For sure, And yeah. all of 
texts and a lot of this these these old documented um, artifacts and certain things you know area 51 there's some there's some interesting things going on where it's like in my mind there's no doubt it's just how deep does it go get some of these old ruins and some of these technologies that were built with you know alignment with the stars and you know energy sources and antennas and stuff like way before we had technology to do this where are they getting in their information from you know so either they we rose to consciousness and then that the consciousness died off or we were we 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 had help from somewhere else other technologies to help build certain things and then again i don't know the answer to this i don't think we'll ever truly know because even the quote-unquote experts in these fields have completely polar opposite views on this stuff. And then if, if you're religious, you believe that humans have been around, what, 10,000 years? Like, you know, the yeah. Bible's only been, you know, to, you know, we're only 2020 here. So if you believe, you know, humans were, you know, depends on who you ask in that in that world, like 5, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000, whatever that is, it's very insignificant compared to some of these numbers that guys like Paul Stamets are throwing around and, and some of these, you know, Graham Hancock and some of these guys, you're talking about mm -hmm. millions and millions and millions of years. It's like, okay, well, that's a lot of years. That's a lot of years. If you're just talking about building consciousness from an ape eating mushrooms for that, you know, I feel like we should be, more, we should way, be way more <laughs> advanced, um, you know? So I don't know, but uh, it's an interesting hypothesis for sure. And there's no question that mushrooms and all these other psychedelics in, in, increase uh, consciousness. Yeah, did you see those uh, videos that the Pentagon released of the UFOs? The, like back, back, in, back in the day or the new ones? Uh, actually, I haven't actually watched them myself. I just saw on social media that they released some videos of some unidentified flying objects but it's just interesting like that it is out there yeah i didn't see those specific ones i'm not surprised i mean they're certainly sitting on yeah. some information that i tell in the public um from all the you know stories i know they're anecdotal stories and there's some interesting crop circles which are almost like question that humans could actually do that in a short amount of time they're super precise a lot of these symbols and designs that are in these you know in these in these crops are are, are almost so perfect and and mm -hmm. they, they almost look like they are some sort of language some sort of communication so again i don't know the, the answer you have to just believe sometimes right and believe in something bigger than what you're being told because i think again i grew up in a you know religious household and you know, aliens would be like, if you brought that up, it'd be laughing. You'd be, they'd laugh at you. Like, there's no way humans are everything. And, you know, this is the way it is and blah, blah, blah. But like, to me, just like being a realist with just understanding, you know, some politics, you know, listening to the stories, you know, the Area 51 stuff, listening to other people talk, you know, Netflix has a ton of you know information on ancient aliens and all this stuff. And just making sense of the stars, like what I said earlier, is just the every star has a planet if you know every third one had some sort of life like um to me there's there's got to be extraterrestrials that are probably way more advanced than us so whether they're working with us or against us probably a little bit of both i don't know i mean to, to me it's like how, how do we get in this hole that yeah. we're in already it's like how, you know because i mean if you're if you're floating around in space and these aliens are more advanced than us you look at the human race as you know being as like almost like the, the, the scummiest scummiest yeah. race in, in, in and be like, well, these guys are self-destructing. These guys are gonna, these guys are gonna blow up and set off atomic bombs again and do whatever, do something that's gonna affect, 
you know, the rest, you know, we have a little ripple effect in the universe. It's indirectly going to affect some of these other alien civilizations. I know I'm getting a little deep here, but, you know, you know, from an outside perspective, like you, I just believe that there's uh, something out there, you know, bigger, bigger than us. And um, we, we'd be naive to think that we're not, especially when, you know, too, it's like, you know, Donald Trump launches Space Force. And, you know, there's like a race to collect resources on other planets. So um, who knows how deep it really goes? The, the common man will never, ever truly know. So you just have to, like, listen yeah. to information yeah. and, you know, have your, your, your mind open to some degree. And uh, just be honest that whatever you believe, you can't be, like, super defensive unless someone's opinion is, like, just, like, totally, totally Bush <laughs> League. But, uh, you know, I mean, you have to be open to other people's opinions because it's, like, it's, it's an open-ended book because... We'll never truly know. It's not like the, the government's going to have a briefing tomorrow at 11 a.m. and tell everyone what's going on in outer space yeah. and what's been going on in planet Earth. So, yeah, it's interesting for sure because there's just so much information around. You hear, you know, some you know guys like Joe Rogan and some of these other guys bring on exactly, some pretty yeah. serious ex experts. There's, there's some information, even if you know five percent of it was truth. You know, it's like there's <laughs> yeah, something there that we don't know. So um, going back to cannabis, when you were playing in the NHL, how many players do you think used cannabis on an occasional basis? Uh, when I was playing, I always say the number between 50 and 60. Uh -huh. Every league that I played in, whether it was East Coast League, American League, NHL, there was always a, a nice chunk of the players that would consume cannabis uh, regularly. Um, I think once once the space kind of evolved into more of a medicinal and therapeutic space, or at least there was more education around it, and the CBD craze kind of started, uh, you know, grabbing hold. Then all of a sudden, there was a lot more intentional cannabis users. Again, I think a lot of those guys, I say most of them, I say 99% of them, if there's a conscious player that actually knew that they were you know, using medicinal cannabis, like they're way ahead of their time. But most guys, just like myself, were just like, well, it makes us feel better. You know, we don't get hung over. You know, there's this calming yeah. agent to it. There's all these different things that you kind of acknowledge, but... Um, again, it's schedule one drug and, you know, it's, it's taboo, it's misunderstood. So I think with yeah, the yeah. evolution of the science or the ability to, to, to read more science and distribute more science that, you know, CBD has became extremely popular as an anti-inflammatory and a sleep aid and a neuroprotectant. So, you know, even conservative hockey players that might not have been using dry flower cannabis will now be, or, or I, you could wrap their head around using CBD, you know, non-intoxicating cannabinoids to help with their recovery, help with their sleep, help with their anxiety, help with their inflammation. So I would like to think now if you're not using CBD or some cannabis-based product, I'm not saying every guy smoke an herb, but I would like to think that in the high 90s of guys at least using CBD products. And then there's obviously a guy, a lot of guys doing a combination of both. But, uh, you know, some guys, you know, some guys really don't want to get high. Just like a lot of, there's just a lot of, you know, common, just common don't want to get high they, they, they don't like that feeling and that's fine that's i think that's the beauty of the, the hemp derived cbd or the, some of these really low thc varieties of cannabis is that you can you can you can enjoy the benefits of cannabis without that impairment without that you know that that um you know that uh, shock to the psyche if you want to call it that so i think now when the cat's out of the bag i mean this is an amazing recovery yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll see in the next year or two we're it's this is this is passed down through the organization through the medical staff and the teams are actually supplying CBD products in the locker room, creams for massages, transdermal patches, 
oils before and after games for recovery, anti-inflammatory, getting the neuroprotective properties in before and after games to protect the brain for any contact sports specifically, um, just giving these guys that extra layer of protection. So there's a whole other dimension of this once it's actually you know, passed down through the medical system and strength and conditioning staff to educate their players. Because right now all the players are going outside of the locker room to find their CBD and cannabis-based products. Yeah. Because it's still cannabis still is a is a banned substance in sports or in, in, in mm-hmm. hockey, believe it or not. So um, these guys are just, you know, say wiser than the, the than the than the rules themselves and and are using these products because they help. And you know, there's a lot of them using them for the non-intoxicating cannabinoids, which is extremely powerful. Yeah, it's definitely like a, a huge bandwagon. Like even BioSteel, they got bought by a cannabis company, right? And I think yeah, they're going to have some cannabis. CBD in their products now. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you talk about sports recovery or just basic recovery, it's all the same. Whether you're working a nine to five or you're an athlete and you have to recover and practice in the morning, it's like the, the, the progression of recovery is the same thing. Like we have to calm the nervous system. We have to relax. We have to remove inflammation. We have to promote a good night's rest. We have to sleep properly. And then we're, you know, we have the ability to build the brain and neural pathways while we're sleeping and wake up in the morning feeling fresh. So again, when you're working a nine to five or an athlete, it's like, if you do those things the right way, you're going to perform better the next morning, whether it's on the ice or in the office. So, um, to me, to me, this is just, this is just the future of, the way we take care of ourselves instead of being hooked on Ambien or NyQuil or yeah. some of these other aids and, you know, and, and being on other pills, you know, muscle relaxants and you know, painkillers and Tylenol three and all these different prescription drugs. You could be on four or five different pharmaceutical drugs over the counter or, or prescription um, to achieve the exact same things you can with a cannabis based product. Yeah. Again, the anxiety, you can be an SSRI, you can be on one of those anti-anxiety meds for that. You can be on anti-inflammatory for removing inflammation. You can be on a sleeping pill for sleep and, you know, push that all aside and you got one plant that can do it all. And in fact, do it all plus more because none of those other drugs promote neurogenesis, brain cell growth, you know? So uh, it's a, it's a no brainer. And if, if, general managers and sports organizations were actually properly educated as a GM and owner, I'd be like, if I'm going to invest that much money into my players to win Stanley cups and championships, I'm going to protect my investment best I can. If I could, if I could could prevent a a four, four week concussion um, to, you know, maybe reducing that to two weeks based on having these neuroprotective properties in our, you know, in our bodies, in our brains before the, the actual trauma, if I can minimize that, that might be the difference of making the playoffs and not making the playoffs. Your captain or your go-to guy, if you can recover a week or two sooner because of you know doing the right thing with these cannabinoids, again, that's the difference of making the playoffs, not making the playoffs, and then winning Stanley Cup, not making or not winning Stanley Cup. Yeah. Take yourself out of the line for too long, you lose games, man games and and championships, and you're in the business of winning. So for me, it's a no-brainer. To, as, as a general manager, I put myself in that seat. I understand the politics, the taboo, the, the stigma, but it's yeah, like, yeah. guess what? We're here to – we should be there first to take care of our players, right? I mean, you take care of your players the right way, you're going to limit You're gonna limit the amount of substance abuse issues these guys have too. ton of alcoholism in hockey and mm-hmm. just in, in general 
culture and a ton of opioid and, and, and substance abuse with pharmaceutical drugs. Ambien is probably one of the most abused drugs in hockey, probably in sports and in society. And then the opioids. So it's again, it's like harm reduction, talking about harm reduction, prevention of substance abuse, prevention of injury. As an organization, general manager, brass as, as a whole, we should be we should be absolutely endorsing this and, and and getting as much information and education we can to the staff so we can get that information to the players so we can actually do this internally and from within because right now guys are just taking other people's words for it or figuring out their own and not saying that they can't figure it out on their own but there's this whole other whole other dimension of studying this to actually get real real precise on our results if you if you're able to study it and get some data collection based on milligrams for individuals you know you know how many milligrams do we need after a game how many milligrams before you know getting very precise with the dosing so um that's the direction it's going but you know biosteel adding cbd is brilliant i mean the company probably you know tripled in in value based on yeah. that move i already seen them selling in the u.s at uh, one of these you know the gnc or one of these health you know health health stores and you know in malls and whatever else so you know, the CBD is going to add in everything, but people are understanding that it does help with recovery. So athlete or not, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And do you think psilocybin will ever become on the level that CBD is approaching right now, like uh, in general? Uh, you know what? I, I would I would like to say so. Uh, I think the complicated part about psilocybin is that it, say it is a psychedelic. You can sell this and then you have people misuse it just like anything else, right? And so all of a sudden, like in the 60s where they misused the LSD and all of a sudden, you know, the yeah, government yeah. shuts it down and all that stuff. So uh, I, I wish humans were more responsible to, to, to say yes to that question. I look at two sides of this. I look at the microdosing and I look at the macrodosing. To me, microdosing should be available for everyone, right? Everyone could use microdosing, mental health just anxiety, depression, all things mental health, concussions, TBI, Parkinson's, I mean, you name it, microdosing, no psychedelic effect. Well, how do you like draw a line in the sand and say, okay, you can have microdose, but you can't have macrodose because you can just buy a ton of ma- microdose. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like you can drink one beer or you can drink 30 beers. So we, we already, I mean, we already know that you can abuse anything, right? Cheeseburgers, look at America, man. We're, we're, we're fat, sick, nearly dead. So yeah. uh, the problem with say the problem with psychedelics is if we take this irresponsible culture, this low vibrational culture, and we just like, here, here's, here's this powerful medicine, go use it without intention. You know, there, there is a negative side to that. So to find that balance, I don't know how you, you, you can sell psilocybin without selling both sides of it. I know certain companies are using niacin in their microdose pills. So you couldn't just you couldn't just gobble up 10 microdoses, you know, of 100 milligrams each and, you know, and and trip out because of niacin, there'd be so much niacin. And I don't know if you know much about niacin, but it flushes your it flushes your system where you become red and hot. And, you know, so it's part of the, the niacin in there is there's I think it's twofold. It's to actually open up um, what do they call them? like uh, blood vessels for the yeah, yeah. for the medicine to work a little bit better. But also for people to not abuse the the microdose. So I just don't know how you regulate it. Um, but I think, but I think it will get to a point where it's absolutely legal. But I think that the macro will be in in um, in clinical settings. So in that you know that clinical immersion, that really the psychotherapist type of environment where you have to go wear nightshades and 
do it in, in that or you go into a you know retreat center in legal markets like in Jamaica or wherever they're they're legal. But I really like to think that the micros will be able to sold, be sold as, as supplements because it's so, so valuable, so important to uh, you know, people's mental health. But, uh, you know, I think we're years away. You know, there's a huge movement, you know, in the U.S. There's at least three, four cities now have decriminalized. I know Canada is talking about decriminalizing as a, as a country, not even just psilocybin. I'm hearing all drugs kind of taking on the wow. Portugal model, taking out the, taking the crime out of uh, drugs, right? Taking the crime out of out of it because once you once you outlaw anything, you bring the crime into it. Whether it's coffee beans, you know, cow's milk, or or schedule one drugs. So uh, I think once you once you understand prohibition, you you like to think that you can re- you can remove and reduce a lot of damage by by um, by removing the prohibition. But uh, there's um there's there's a movement, but I think we're still you know a few years away from actually seeing a true movement like you're seeing in, in sport in cannabis and sports with psilocybin. But in saying that, I know a ton of current athletes, NHL players using psilocybin microdosing. Mm-hmm. I know a ton of, you know, athletes in general, um, you know, coders in, Sil- in Silicon Valley. There's a big, big thing. There's a big movement going on with this as a, as, as a tool for performance. So I don't think we're too far off, but it's going to stay in that, uh, that underground for, for some time. All right. Uh, one more question uh, before we wrap this up. According to Hockey DB, you have one career uh, NHL goal. Do you remember that goal? <laughs> really? Yeah. My, my, my hockey career is a fog. But actually, I did a podcast <laughs> today with Bernie. I actually talked about it. I made a mm-hmm. joke about it. I said my my only NHL goal, goal was against the second best goalie ever played in the NHL. And that was Carey Price uh, next <laughs> to Bernie Perron. But um, yeah, I, I remember the goal. I was I didn't even celebrate it because we were down, I think five one, uh, with um, I don't even know four or five minutes to go. So I made it like five two. The game was still out of reach. So I scored, kind of cruising the corner. Guys came over and like <laughs> no celebration, just like went line back up at center ice and and try to fight Steve Beijing. Cause I was like I I gotta do something else, man. I was like that didn't even yeah. satisfy me, but. Yeah, no, I, I I remember it. Obviously, your only NHL goal. How can you forget it? But yeah. I mean, fuck. Yeah, it, it's to me, it was uh, it was it, that was like secondary to you know the experience of playing the NHL and you know doing what I needed to do. Yeah, would I like to score more goals? I'm not sure to change my career a whole lot if I scored five or ten more. But um, um, certainly, it was certainly nice to score at least one to play 160 some games in the NHL and. And to not score any would be uh, would, would have been would have been a tough one to 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 sleep yeah. on. But uh, yeah, no, I mean it was uh, it was cool, but I mean insignificant in my life, honestly. Yeah. Well, I thought that was a great conversation. Thanks for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone, that was episode three. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and stay tuned for next week when we drop episode four. In the meantime, follow me on at HockeyNewsIG on Instagram for more hockey content. Have a great week, everyone.